The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Defaults matter a lot. And they're very important in terms of designing any technology service for just regular human beings. Most people never change the default settings on any given app or service that they use. So if you default to not having end-to-end encryption turned on for these additional data categories, then we can expect that most users are probably not gonna change that setting. It means that if most users don't opt in, then that reduces the amount of visibility that Apple and therefore law enforcement will lose when it comes to iCloud data in terms of digital evidence collection. I'm Stephanie Pell, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, December 14th, 2022. Last week, Apple made an announcement about some new security features it would be offering to users. One of those features involves users' ability to opt in to end-to-end encryption for iPhone backups to iCloud. While this new feature will enhance data privacy and security for those users who choose to opt in, it may create additional challenges for law enforcement to obtain evidence in criminal investigations. To discuss the implications and potential impact of this new security feature, I sat down with Rihanna Pfefferkorn, research scholar at the Stanford Internet Observatory. We discussed the costs and benefits to users who may choose to opt into this feature, how Apple's choice to offer this feature plays into a broader conflict known as the crypto wars or the going dark debate, and how this feature relates to another part of Apple's announcement where it indicated that it would not be scanning all iPhones for child sexual abuse material before images were backed up to iCloud. It's the Lawfare Podcast, December 14th. Rihanna Pfefferkorn on end-to-end encryption for iPhone backups to iCloud. So, Rihanna, last week, Apple made an announcement about some new security features it would be offering to users. Apple's calling it advanced data protection. Can you explain what exactly Apple is allowing users to choose to do and how this new feature offers stronger protection for the privacy and security of users' data? Sure. So Apple had already previously had 
end-to-end encryption on by default for certain categories of data in iCloud, and those included your iCloud keychain, health data, maps, Safari history, payment information and Apple Card transactions, iCloud messages under certain conditions, Wi-Fi passwords. And what they've done now is to say it is possible if you choose to do so and if you meet a couple of requirements, you can opt in to basically press a button and have an additional, you know, they've been saying it goes from 14 categories to 23 categories of data that will be end-to-end encrypted in iCloud. And they have uh, stated that this is in order to ensure that people's iCloud data, most iCloud data will be protected, even in the case of a data breach in the cloud. So now if the user opts in, these additional categories will include iCloud backups, notes, Photos, I'm sure we'll talk about photos more, as well as voice memos, reminders, uh, Safari bookmarks, wallet passes, maybe a couple other things in there. It's, it's, it's an all or nothing setting. So it's not like you get a list of menu options where you can say, oh, you know, I want to turn that on for Safari bookmarks, but I don't feel like turning it on for voice memos or reminders and like pick and choose like a menu. It's all or nothing. And the exceptions that they've mentioned due to interoperability requirements are iCloud Mail, contacts and calendar. So if I'm a user and and I'm trying to understand if this is a good idea for me, I want to talk a little bit about the the costs and benefits. You know, what am I going to gain by doing this and and are there some challenges though or some issues users should understand before choosing to opt into this feature? Yeah, so you gain, I guess, some peace of mind about data security, because when data is end-to-end encrypted, that means not even Apple can access the plain text of that data. So what Apple has done is put more categories of users' data beyond its own reach, as well as that of attackers or law enforcement. Apple can't read it. Apple can't accidentally leak it in plain text in the event of a data breach. Apple can't hand it over to law enforcement in response to legal process. Apple doesn't see what's in there. Only the user can access that information Apple cannot. So if you are concerned about putting your data in the cloud and you're concerned that you know the, the entity to which you are entrusting that information might be able to, to do something with it, by that's you know scanning it for good or for ill, or you're concerned about the potential for it to be accessed by particular governments, or you're concerned about cybercrime, this is intended to, I guess, provide greater protection for people for whom that is one of the things that they are concerned about. Not everybody is necessarily going to to be concerned about that. Certainly a lot of people have been using iCloud all this time, even without this functionality available. Um, and because it's opt-in, it doesn't mean that everybody is going to rush to, to turn this on. Um, it'll be people for whom that meets their needs for what they want of cloud privacy and security. So you mentioned the fact that Apple will not have the ability to access to the data or, or to decrypt it because it it won't have access to the keys. What does that mean in terms of what the user needs to think about if they, you know, forget their passcode? Yeah, so Apple has said that there are a few things that you have to do in order to turn this feature on, including, you know, your, your device has to be compatible with it. But one of those is that If the user wants to turn on advanced data protection, Apple will require the user to set up at least one alternative recovery method, meaning one or more recovery contacts, so some other 
account that you know can basically be authorized to help you re recover your your information or a recovery key and then the user can use one of those recovery methods to recover their iCloud data if they lose access to their account if the recovery contacts information is out of date. If the user forgets the recovery key or loses the recovery key, then Apple cannot help the user get back the end-to-end -end encrypted iCloud data that's that's there. So they won't let you turn this feature on without setting up some way to try and get your account back. But after that, it's kind of, you know, use this at your own risk. It's on you to keep the recovery contact information up to date. Hopefully Apple will set up an automated prompt to people who opt into this feature that just pops up periodically and ask them, hey, is this still up to date? That would be helpful. And it will be on you to store the recovery key somewhere that you would be able to retrieve it. Um, I'm guessing it's going to be something that you wouldn't want to memorize, you know, for other systems for which I have recovery key as backups, I just, you know, store the, they're just lists of numbers and letters that I store someplace. So that's something that would help, you know, fend off the potential for data loss, which I suspect is why we haven't seen end-to-end -end encryption turned on for all of iCloud by default this whole time is account recovery being a major, major issue because people drop their phone in the lake or forget their passcode or whatever all the time. So there's an attempt to try and, and build in an account recovery method, which I suspect probably makes the technical um, implementation of this design more difficult. I don't really know because I'm not a technologist, but you've hit the nail on the head in terms of, you know, there's being this tension between wanting to get more security for your data, as well as the usability of, you know, what happens if these sort of normal things in life, like dropping your phone in a lake, you know, might, might happen to you. Account recovery is a major consideration. Um, and so this is something where people need to be prepared that there's a bit of a trade-off, that if they decide that their, you know, their threat model requires them to try and take additional precautions here to secure their data. The trade-off there is that they need to either have some way of making sure that they can recover that data or that they are essentially willing to lose access forever to this data that is so sensitive that they want extra protections for it. So you just used the term threat model, which is a really useful way of, you know, a user thinking about the kinds of security precautions that they need to take, you know, broadly. Can you talk a little bit more about what a threat model is and, and how a user should maybe go about thinking about their own threat model? Yeah, so everybody's threat model is going to vary. And for somebody's threat model, you're thinking about what assets do I need to protect, whether that's information, whether that is my home or my children or what have you? How do I want to protect them? What are the threats to them that I am concerned about that those might actually happen to these assets? And then what is the fallout if that threat becomes realized and comes to pass? And so one person's threat model might include an abusive ex-partner. Another person's threat model might be that they are in a country where their political affiliation puts them at risk of persecution by their government. Another person might be at risk of getting spearfished because they are an executive in a, a you know large like Fortune 500 company or something like that, and they have to be concerned about being impersonated um, or having their account stolen. Somebody else might have a lot of cryptocurrency and be concerned about making sure that nobody is able to access their wallet credentials and so forth. So you're looking at all these different things to, to take into consideration, where for a lot of us, maybe we don't necessarily have particularly sensitive 
either life critical, like life safety, like issues in mind, or a lot of like monetary stuff at stake. But maybe it's things like health data, where you don't necessarily want your health information out there for all to see. That is, I'm guessing, one of the reasons why health data was already end-to-end encrypted in iCloud uh, to begin with, even before this feature was rolled out. So every person's threat model will look different. And it's probably something that I think a lot of people may do unconsciously without necessarily phrasing it to themselves in that way, because it is a concept that I think comes up a lot more in like cybersecurity circles. But I think everybody has kind of an intuitive grasp of what that might mean. You mentioned this before, but I I want to make clear that Apple is not decrypting these new categories of data in the iCloud by default. And in contrast, in communication services like Signal or WhatsApp, your messages are encrypted end-to-end by default. Users don't have to opt in. Do we know yet whether Apple is going to prompt its users to set up this new feature? Or is this something users are going to have to sort of dig through in the various screens of setting up the phone? That's a great question. I don't know. I can see it being something that, you know, I mean, just personally, I would love to see all the online services we use periodically put up a prompt that might even just say something as simple as, hey, review your security settings, review your privacy settings. And then potentially that could lead to something that would include, oh, you know, by the way, this advanced data protection option is also available. That's something that seems like just good practice in generally, because people's needs or their preferences may evolve uh, over time, and it becomes an opportunity to put in front of the user additional security or privacy settings that they may not have turned on um, right now. But I don't know if they're going to have that be something that they're going to push on average users or if it's just going to be there. Because I can also see Apple sort of long-standing having a a dedication to trying to make everything really easy and seamless for the user. And there's kind of this allergy amongst like designers to pop up anything in front of the user, put any kind of friction or speed bump in between like the user just getting to whatever the thing is that they want to do. So I could also see that being attention in the other direction to say, you know, we'll let people seek this out if they want to do it. But I don't know yet what that's going to look like. It sounds like this isn't out there yet. This is going to come up in the United States, like by the end of of this year, they're going to start rolling out in other countries next year. So we may find out soon what this looks like. Now, we've seen some coverage, I think, in the New York Times, um, some statements by law enforcement suggesting that this new feature will make it more difficult for law enforcement to investigate serious crimes. And I want to unpack these claims a bit. To begin with, can you talk a little bit about the fact that and you you referenced this earlier, because Apple will no longer have access to the keys to decrypt the, the data, it won't be able to provide law enforcement with access to the data or to the unencrypted data, I should say, even with a warrant, correct? That's right. In that regard, to what extent, in your view, does that really change the landscape or, or the challenge for law enforcement? Is this a new issue or is this part of a a constellation of issues that law enforcement is already dealing with? I would say that it's probably more the latter. It's kind of a new wrinkle in a complex digital evidence collection landscape right now, 
where, you know, as we've been talking about, this is only going to apply to user accounts where the user affirmatively chooses to opt in and turn this feature on. Defaults matter a lot. They're very important in terms of designing any technology service for just regular human beings. Most people never change the default settings on any given app or service that they use. So if you default to not having end-to-end encryption turned on for these additional data categories, then we can expect that most users are probably not going to change that setting. Um, if they want more protection, they can opt in and choose that. That's that's great. But it means that if most users don't opt in, then that reduces the amount of visibility that Apple and therefore law enforcement will lose when it comes to iCloud data in terms of digital evidence collection. Like It'll probably be a fairly small percentage of people, I don't know exactly what percent, um, or whether Apple has, you know, user focus group tested this, try and figure out like what percentage they anticipate will turn this on. But it's probably going to be a fairly new, it's, it's, I, I would not think that it will be the majority of people are going to opt into this, largely because, you know, of the the potential for, for both because people don't tweak their defaults, but also because of the potential for data loss and the hassle of having to either you know have these other recovery keys or have an external account recovery mechanism, whatever it is. And here too, like when I was looking through some of the documentation for this new functionality, there are still going to be some contexts where user data isn't going to be end-to-end encrypted, even for users who opt into this new feature. So for one thing, Apple's documentation notes that if you have a sh- you use shared albums in photos, that won't support advanced data protection. If you put photos in a shared album, that's going to be stored with their standard level of data protection where, you know, they are applying, you know, very security measures to it, but it's not on the same level as end-to-end encryption where only the user can access it um, because the shared albums feature allows albums to be shared publicly on the web. So for photos, which I think due to, I'm sure we'll talk about this more, child sex abuse material, that's the type of data that everybody goes straight to discussing whenever we talk about end-to-end encryption and access to, to user data. For photos, there's going to be this functionality where if I add photos to a shared album, that won't be end-to-end encryption, even if I have otherwise turned on advanced data protection and otherwise have end-to-end encrypted photos in iCloud. I think that may be an interesting trip up because if I send somebody a photo via iMessage, iMessage is end-to-end encrypted by default, so the photo attachment will be end-to-end encrypted by default in transit. iMessage was already end-to-end encrypted for, for years now. That behavior is going to be different from the expected behavior in iMessage between iMessage and shared photo albums. And it's ex- different from the expected behavior of turning on advanced data protection, where you might think, oh, okay, I turn this on, all my photos are now end-to-end encrypted. So that might trip some people up if they are trading CSAM, which is the use case that we always talk about when we talk about encryption, because they might expect that one sharing method or one storage method is protected the same as the others. So that's one possible outlet where there might still be some visibility. Apple has also said in its documentation, as I noted above, that iCloud Mail, Contacts, and Calendar won't be end-to-end encrypted. So if I attach you know, an incriminating document or photo to a mail message, Apple has always been able to detect that. They'll still be able to do so. And finally, I think this is interesting. Um, Apple's documentation says that this feature, Advanced Data Protection for iCloud, won't be eligible, won't be supported for child accounts. Um, so to the extent that we worry about child safety, especially in these encryption debates, if child accounts just can't turn this on at all, then that also seems like another place where there will be some you know, relief from worries about what this will do to law enforcement investigations. And, you know, I, I, we could talk about the reasons for these choices. To me, it seems like 
It might be one choice to not allow this for child accounts to try and protect child safety when this is something that Apple has been under a microscope about for the last few years. Um, but I'm sure it's also a concession to the fact that like, if you think adults are forgetful or prone to clumsily dropping their phones in the toilet, like, have you met children? So like, there, there are probably good reasons for that too. We talk a lot in these discussions about, well, why is Apple doing this? Why did they decide not to do it before that we always default, everybody rushes to talking about, well, it's law enforcement, it's law enforcement pressure, or it's fear of pissing off the FBI, when in fact, a lot of it might just be like, this is just, you know, the better choice for most users is going to be having account recovery options, and not losing, you know, the photos from their kids first year of life. It's, you know, making it be designed for like real world settings where people are clumsy, people lose their phones, people's houses burn down, etc. Rather than having it solely be about law enforcement needs and trying to preserve that access for law enforcement. If I am thinking about law enforcement needs, I mean, one thing I could see law enforcement saying is, look, we've got a warrant when we go to Apple or another kind of provider like like Google, and we go with this warrant and we get the data that this warrant lawfully permits us to obtain, we don't have to go to the user and alert the user that he or she is under investigation. So to the extent that this new feature shifts situations more towards law enforcement having to go directly to the user to get the data off of his or her phone, is that is that a valid argument, do you think? I mean, can, can you see law enforcement's perspective on that point? Certainly. And I think, though, that this can be contextualized against, you know, however many decades we want to to go back for this. In the last eight years since Apple removed the ability to unlock phones for law enforcement, if law enforcement wanted to get data from a phone, they were no longer able to just have Apple do it. They would have to go straight to the user, but they'd have the phone in custody anyway. So if we want to compare this new functionality to getting data off of a phone, the user is tipped off. You know, if the user is you know alive and present and not you know missing or whatever, then the user knows like they don't have their phone anymore, and and law enforcement does. And so that has already been a place to tip the user off. If you think of it as being like email um, and and you know remotely stored webmail, then that also is something that goes back you know what is it I guess eighteen years ish since like Gmail launched and potentially a little further back for some other services, but where previously that was all something that was you know your your mail that you would store in a filing cabinet after receiving it through the postal service. All of this is kind of talking about like waves and and changes over time from like a totally brick and mortar world where everything that we exchanged was on a paper letter or in a phone call, which was never recorded. Um, It was always ephemeral to something where now we have a lot of electronically created documentation of our conversations and our files and our transactions. And a lot of that gets stored remotely rather than on-prem in the computer that law enforcement would previously have needed to carry out of my office with a warrant when they executed a warrant for my for my office, right? So, you know, I can see the law enforcement perspective there, but so much of the encryption debate I view as being kind of a a temporary blip for a few years where it was easy to get into phones, um, where it was easy to potentially get access to data that was stored remotely. And over time, that balance has changed, but it was always something that had kind of come out of technological shifts 
as part of a move away from the traditional brick and mortar world and the traditionally like a lot of stuff, more stuff being ephemeral kind of a world. So it's all, as I see it, like you know, the, the tide shifts you know, in and out in terms of how much data is accessible to law enforcement or not. All of which is against, as you point out, Stephanie, in the past, a background of the growing plethora of other sources of data, such as Internet of Things data, for example, much of which is, is not encrypted. And so there's been overall just so much more information about us being created, much of which is not end-to-end encrypted, and some of which may never be end-to-end encrypted. So the the overall wealth of data that is out there, um, within that we can situate access to information that requires going to the person who's the target of the investigation or witness or whatever, as opposed to being able to do something in secret um, without everybody in the neighborhood seeing a search warrant get executed or the user knowing that that is happening. It's, it's all something that I view as being the tide coming in and out over time. So that tide coming in and out over time and how society and the technology companies respond to this, um, you know, you've talked about the encryption debate. Sometimes it's framed as the going dark debate. I think of the FBI versus Apple case, which involved an iPhone of a one of the San Bernardino shooters as one of the most high profile expressions of that debate. Can you remind us what happened in that case. And I'm, I'm curious for your perspective on where, whether you think this new feature could someday be sort of sending on us back to another FBI v. Apple showdown. Well, I'll take your, your second question first, which is I'm not sure if we will see this create a renewed showdown, at least not yet, in part because the FBI's statement in response to Apple's announcement was kind of half-hearted like it sounded like the same thing they would have said five years ago about you know we think that there needs to be responsibly managed encryption whatever that means and and encryption hinders our ability to protect the american people we need lawful access by design it was the same thing that you would have heard like five years ago but it seemed like their heart just wasn't in it honestly and so we'll see if that changes if there is in fact a case where the but for impediment between resolving an investigation and bringing somebody to justice and not was was access to to, to iCloud data. But for now, it kind of seems like there isn't, and I hope I'm right about this. Maybe I'm being, you know, rose-colored glasses about this. I don't see the appetite right now for the FBI to really come out swinging and renew as vehemently their their pushback against encryption as we had seen previously. We can talk about the reasons why that is. But to go back to your question about like what happened in the San Bernardino incident. So seven seven years ago now, uh, at the end of 2015, there was this attack with a shooter and his wife shooting up his workplace in Southern California. A couple of phones were recovered from the, the car in which they died in the hill of gunfire uh, in a shootout with the police. And the investigators wanted to be able to get data off of the iPhone that was found with the, with the San Bernardino shooter. But Apple at that point had shifted their iOS engineering so that they could no longer unlock iPhones for law enforcement. This phone was running the newer version of iOS that they could not unlock. Um, and so um, the FBI went to court to try and force Apple to enable the FBI to brute force guess the passcode to the phone. So not by having to break the encryption, but but rather by removing some other security protections that Apple had built in to prevent people from being able to rapidly 
guess, you know, thousands or however many combinations you would need in order to figure out what the passcode was, because Apple had built in a couple of things like increasingly long lengths of time in between password guesses if you get it wrong to where it you know goes from a few seconds to up to like an hour or something like that uh limiting the number of password guesses that you can do before the phone might brick itself um and just you know wipe the phone entirely all of this makes total sense as measures for apple to build in so that if your phone gets stolen you know off of the counter while you're in the bathroom at the cafe somebody can't just you know guess your your passcode get into there and then have access to you know, all of your accounts, potentially your bank login, etc. But what the FBI wanted was to say, we need to be able to try and brute force guess this passcode. And so they initially got a court order from a federal judge in Riverside, uh, California, to order Apple to create a custom version of iOS that would remove these security protections that would be deployed just to this one phone, according to, to the FBI, just this one time. After a lot of pushback from civil society and quite a lot of very high profile news coverage of this uh, court proceeding, which ordinarily would have happened in secret under seal, but which the government had chosen to file publicly, eventually the FBI had to admit that they had purchased a third party exploit from what we now know was a small company in Australia for something to the tune of like $900,000 of of U.S. taxpayer money and had been able to get into the phone uh, themselves. And so the court order was vacated. The whole matter was dropped. The FBI was able to get into that phone without Apple ever actually having to create that custom version of iOS. And that was the thing that had kicked off the renewed crypto wars that had otherwise been kind of going on periodically since the 90s. So Apple made this change in 2014. Google soon followed for Android phones. And then it got put to the test whether Apple could be compelled to help uh, provide technical assistance for the government to get into phones not that long after they had made this change for for iPhone. And so now that we have encrypted devices to also say, it, it was it was evident even at the time that if iCloud was still accessible to law enforcement, then encrypting devices was going to take away one part of the sources available to law enforcement. But if you have your iCloud or your, your iPhone backed up to iCloud and that is mostly accessible to law enforcement, then in most situations we could expect that law enforcement might be able to just go get that backup and get a pretty close idea. Here, one of the issues, if I recall correctly, was that the shooter's iPhone had not been backed up for a few weeks um, prior to the attack. And the FBI wanted to be able to see, like, what were we missing in that gap since the last backup, which, as I understand it, Apple had turned over to law enforcement. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You mentioned the fact, I, I want to dig into a little bit about what happened the case in terms of the FBI 
ultimately being able to open the phone. Then former FBI Director Jim Comey indicated to Congress, I believe, that the company that facilitated law enforcement access, you know, charged them upwards of $900,000. As I understand it, though, since that time, there's been a lot of development in mobile device forensic tools that's facilitating a whole lot of law enforcement access to phones that just wasn't available in 2014. Yeah, that, that's, that's right, as I understand it. In addition to having this private industry you know, set of vendors that create and sell these tools, the federal government also has its own teams that create their own exploits to try and get access to data, which I believe was what happened when uh, a little more recently, when there was the Pensacola shooting in Florida, the government also was making noises like it was going to take Apple to court, but then also had to announce um, a few months after that shooting that they had been able to get into the Pensacola shooter's iPhone. And there it seemed like it was from using their own home-rolled tools that the FBI has technicians working on to develop themselves. But probably better known outside of the government's own homeworld tools are these third-party developed tools. The two probably most famous companies are um, Celebrate, which is an Israeli company that makes uh, mobile device forensics tools for various combinations of handset and operating system. And then GrayShift, which is a company founded by a former Apple employee that initially made what they call the Gray Key tool that was initially just for iPhones, but as I understand it, has now been expanded to other phone models as well. And so these are devices for getting information off of otherwise locked phones without the assistance of the user, without having the user um, unlock the phone for law enforcement, which a lot of people do, by the way. A lot of people allow what are called consent searches by law enforcement, where law enforcement just asks, hey, can you unlock this phone for us? And people do it. Um, and you don't even need a warrant in those situations. But we know from reporting by an entity called Upturn, who put out a report in 2020, a couple of years ago now, they had sent a lot of Public Records Act requests to police departments around the country and had determined that these mobile device forensics tools are in the hands of several thousand law enforcement agencies around the country, including 49 of the top 50 biggest cities in the United States. So these have become fairly prolific and fairly widespread. I've always thought that there have been several safety valves in the encryption debate that can help to keep at bay the periodic proposals for legislation to mandate some mechanism for giving law enforcement access to the plain text of encrypted data and communications and devices. One of those safety valves I mentioned earlier is that there's still so much data out there that's not encrypted and maybe never will be, um, like Internet of Things data, a lot of metadata, et cetera, and even a lot of content data that's not end-to-end encryption. Think of everybody posting themselves writing at the Capitol, like on unencrypted, like social media platforms, you, social media gives people enough rope to hang themselves with as it is leaving aside encrypted devices, encrypted messaging apps. Another safety valve is backups weren't end to end encrypted, as, as I'd mentioned before. A third safety valve is people having an inaccurate understanding of what their privacy and security functionalities are for the apps and devices that they use, which I was mentioning earlier when talking about contrasting how iMessage works with how shared photo albums will work uh, under this new ADP program. And then the fourth safety valve is these digital forensics tools, where as these tools got more widespread, as the FBI has kept developing its own tools, it seemed to me as somebody who's been following the encryption debate as my job for the last seven years, that we heard less and less statements 
from law enforcement about how encryption was hampering their ability to get into phones. Like I mentioned in the Pensacola shooter case, just like in the San Bernardino case, the, event, the FBI eventually got into the phone without Apple's assistance. And that to me, Pensacola was kind of a turning point where we, we, we just stopped hearing that much talk about the inability to get into phones at all. And it either shifted to, well, we would like to get into them faster than having to use these, you know, these tools or brute force guessing or, or um, shifting to talking about encrypted messaging rather than focusing on stored device information. And here, now that we're talking about stored information in the cloud rather than on device, maybe we'll see the discussion shift a little bit. But nevertheless, because there have been all these different safety valves in play all this time, I haven't really seen any one thing. Like if you just knocked out that leg from the chair, I don't know if it will still be held up by these other three. We have these digital vice forensics tools. If you can go to the user and say, will you unlock this phone for us? And then they do, then you get access to their phone. What I don't know about how these devices work, like Celebrate devices, is whether the way that they work enables such an equivalent to just having the unlocked phone in hand that it would also enable access from the device, from the endpoint to those cloud storage accounts in the same way that if you unlock your phone and you know hit the little iCloud you know, app icon, then you can just go straight to iCloud. Moreover, I don't know for the deployment of this advanced data protection feature, what, what that will look like. Do you have to separately enter a passcode in every single time um, in order to get into like wh what that will look like? So it remains to be seen, I guess, how this new addition of what it's probably going to be, as said, uh, a feature that won't be used by that large of a percentage of people, how much that's going to take a bite out of investigatory capabilities, given that we have all of these different safety valves already in play. And when you talk about investigatory capabilities, I'm, I'm kind of reminded of some testimony that former FBI general counsel Valerie Caproni gave back in February 2011, which is, I think, at least useful in understanding law enforcement's perspective. And what she said is, Addressing the going dark problem does not require a broadly applicable solution to every impediment that exists to the government's ability to execute a court order for electronic surveillance. There will always be very sophisticated criminals who use communications modalities that are virtually impossible to intercept through traditional means. The government understands that it must develop individually tailored solutions for those sorts of targets. However, individually tailored solutions have to be the exception and not the rule. And, and it seems like from what you're saying that it, at least from what we know now, this new feature being offered by Apple is unlikely to increase by vast amounts the individually tailored solutions that law enforcement will need to find in, in run-of-the-mill kind of cases. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with you there that like, I, I don't know if we're going to see a huge spike in individually tailored solutions being deployed. Like, I believe it was that same testimony where Caproni had noted, and I'm paraphrasing, that most criminals are going to be low hanging fruit, right? Like people are average. So most criminals are going to be average. So they're going to make the same mistakes as anybody else would. They're going to have inaccurate understandings of the security and privacy properties of apps they use, like I mentioned before, which by the way, Fine if you're investigating a murder, sucks if you are like, you know, somebody who really needs to accurately understand how things work because you are, you know, a dissident in a uh, repressive country or whatever. 
most people will probably not change their defaults, including like most criminals in most run-of-the-mill cases. So much of the time, I anticipate that it will still be feasible for law enforcement to use the existing tools in the toolbox without resorting to individually tailored solutions. After all, like as Caproni mentioned, there will always be sophisticated people who you know, are very aware of how the various services and devices they use work, who have taken countermeasures to try and cover their tracks. And this is something where end-to-end encrypted iCloud is just making it even easier to encrypt your backups. But if you are a sophisticated criminal or just somebody who's worried about other people besides you accessing your backed up data, there's always been ways to encrypt data before uploading it to the cloud. So even if law enforcement had gotten that iCloud, it would still be gobbledygook, right? So if they do scan the cloud, you know, if you have already up- taken some separate program to encrypt data before you upload it, that's always been something that people were able to do. That's always been an option. Or you can just avoid storing stuff in the cloud at all um, or creating that data and leaving a trail to begin with. So for sophisticated people, I don't know that like, they're never going to go away. And we've seen some acknowledgement of this over time from various people within FBI and DOJ. And I, I, I doubt that the individually tailored solutions are going to continue to grow as a result of this shift, largely because it is not on by default and because people make mistakes. And you know, even the way that Apple has designed this, like I mentioned earlier, because there are these gaps here and there, like shared photo albums, I think that still points in the direction of there will be means for law enforcement to, to be able to get access to information. But what this might do is require additional training and you know learning and education by law enforcement to understand better like where are the gaps in this armor what are the things that they may have to do where else can they go for information where we've seen in um research that has been done before by the center for strategic and international studies a few years ago they put out a great report that actually surveyed law enforcement agencies around the the country and asked them, like, what are the things that frustrate you in terms of digital evidence collection? What are the impediments? And encryption was not at the top of their list. The things that were at the top of their list were, we just don't know what data is out there, like what data exists that we could obtain. And we don't know where to go and whom to ask in order to get it. So it's these much more pedestrian concerns, along with things like frustration that they have to somehow say just the right magic words in order to get information that a provider might have, but that they don't know how to get that out of them, like whatever the magic words to ask. Over and above, these were much more significant problems than, oh, the data is encrypted. It was just like knowing where it is, how to get it, um, and like what the technical options are. And so I think that might be potentially the, the first line of resort here might be for law enforcement agencies to say, okay, how does this how is this going to actually affect what we do? What changes would we need to make? How how is this going to work going forward? Um, and so they might have to make some some shifts, and then we'll see after that if they do those adjustments and a lot of other ifs, like how many people are going to turn this on, how many other like sources of data will there be to get it? We'll see what the overall impact of this will actually be. So I don't know that this means we now are going to have to do, you know, Tor browser hacking way more often uh, in order to get uh, access to somebody's device or their data. So I want to change directions a bit. Another part of Apple's announcement last week was that it was not going to implement an earlier proposal where it would scan all iPhones for child sexual abuse material or CSAM images prior to those images being backed up to iCloud. 
Can you explain what this proposal was and whether you see any relationship between um, that former proposal and the security feature that we've been discussing? Yeah. So, so again, to take your second question first, absolutely. A lot of cryptographers and other observers since Apple's announcement have said, this makes a lot of sense that they're going to offer an encrypted and an encrypted iCloud backup option because it's the only reason why they ever would have needed to create this um, this plan for scanning imagery being uploaded to iCloud in the first place. Because if you were no longer able to scan for particular content in iCloud, for example, because you were adding end-to-end encryption, then you would need to find some other way if you wanted to do some sort of illegal imagery, contraband imagery detection, you would have to be at some other point in that process. And so what Apple had decided to do, and they have now said that this plan is dead, is that they were going to scan on the client side as images are uploaded to to iCloud from your photo roll. So they're not going to just look at your camera roll unless you are syncing those images, uploading those images into iCloud. Then they would scan to try and detect whether you had a match between the image that was being uploaded, if they made that create what's called a hash of that image uh, to try and represent like the actual image itself in uh, its equivalent in, in a numerical string, to match that against a set of hashes. Uh, I think they were going to use one maintained by the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children to try and see uh, whether there are is a match between anything that's being uploaded um, from your device and what is known to be known CSAM uh, material. At some threshold of, I think they had said around 30 images, that was when it would trip off a notification uh, for human review. And there would be this process where humans could, in fact, uh, review to make sure that what was being uploaded was, in fact, CSAM. And then that could be reported onwards, uh, I believe, to NCMEC. And they had picked this threshold number of images instead of just hitting on one because they wanted to try and fend off false positives. Because if it's hitting on a high false positive rate, for something that is not in fact CSAM, then having human reviewers looking at this imagery would be a privacy invasion for people's images that are not CSAM and that would otherwise, you know, ought to remain private. So they'd set this this threshold to try and make sure that uh, there was a greater certainty confidence level that what the user was trying to upload was CSAM imagery. And this created a bunch of pushback from me, along with quite a lot of other both privacy and security researchers from people in civil society because of, you know, some of the concerns are the one that I'm most worried about is that I think this really broached uh, a line that I think Apple was viewing as being less meaningful than it is, where they were sort of saying, well, you are choosing to put this stuff into the cloud. And it's like, well, but you're not scanning the cloud. You're looking at this as it's coming off of my device. And that feels like you're crossing a sacrosanct line to say, like, my device is mine. What I might put in the cloud, you know, we could talk about the third-party doctrine, whatever else. What I put in the cloud, you know, you can say, all right, now you can have some conception that maybe that's fair game. It still needn't be. It's still your papers and effects. It's just, you know, in somebody else's custody, um, you know, rather than in your in your office. But having them try and collapse that line between, you know, your device and the cloud, I think, was a major source of just like it was a big shift. And especially because Apple was saying, well, this is because you have affirmatively chosen to upload something from your camera roll into the cloud. 
It's like, well, but the way that Apple has things set up, they push you when you're first setting up your phone um, and you know, periodically thereafter to set up your iCloud account, have everything synced to it, back up all of your photos. So there are a lot of design decisions. As I was mentioning earlier, people don't shift their default settings for the most part. And if you push people by design into making certain choices for backing up your data, for sharing it with Apple, for having it be regularly uh, syncing to the cloud, then it's not really, you're, you're making like a fiction of saying, well, the user affirmatively chose it and therefore in doing so, they assumed the risk, you know, or they uh, consented to allow us to do this, this scanning. And I don't think that that is really true. So that was one of the things that bothered me. And another thing was that if you could do it for CSAM, you could do it for any set of hashes of any types of images that might be imposed upon Apple to, to try and search for. So because, as we mentioned, there are plenty of governments around the world where being gay is illegal, where being part of a particular religion is illegal, where various kinds of political dissent are illegal. Um, so the, the example that would always come to mind is like, is this going to be used to try and persecute Uyghurs in China? Is this going to be used now, more recently, maybe if there are known, you know, hashes of known images from all the protests that were going down there um, against COVID lockdowns or, you know, tank man in the Tiananmen Square, what would be to stop, you know, having Apple be required in order to keep selling phones and keep offering its services in countries that are less freedom loving than the United States to require them to look for this image, this, these kinds of images above and beyond just CSAM, which is illegal everywhere around the world and totally radioactive for good reason. So there were these various like privacy and civil liberties concerns. There were also concerns from security researchers that you could fool it by you know, creating false false positives that might have, you know, feeding somebody into like law enforcement consequences or at least an invasion of privacy by potentially planting false evidence on their phone, which we have seen the police in India do literally like plant evidence on people's phones by using hackers to put that on people's devices and then arresting them um, on the strength of this planted evidence. So it seemed like, like, Oh, you're just making up this concern that there's going to be this adversarial, um, you know, faking through uh, making it seem like this image to a hash system seems like it is a match for a known piece of bad content uh, or prohibited content, when in fact it's not, it's something that's innocuous and you can fool the system. But that could have potential actual like law enforcement ramifications, or at the least pull somebody into uh, uh, something that they need not otherwise deal with. So after a lot of pushback by all of the people who frankly don't seem like they like Apple consulted anybody about these external you know, objections that suddenly got raised. They really seemed taken by surprise. They said they were going to put this proposal on hold. And now with this latest announcement, they have said that that proposal for client-side scanning on upload to, uh, to the cloud is actually really, really dead. So given that it's dead, in thinking about the decision that Apple made to allow users to opt in to end-to-end -end encryption. It doesn't sound like, at least at the moment, we're having to grapple with some of the challenges that would come if at a point in time, technology advanced in a way that made Apple comfortable in encrypting the cloud end-to-end -end by default. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I mean, so for the time being, like we've been pointing out, like if this is opt-in and people don't change their defaults and most people won't change it, then 
there will probably be, you know, this may be a context where people who want to store CSAM may take full advantage of this. But whereas I said, there may be ways that if they trade it through shared photo albums, they may not understand that's not end-to-end encrypted. Um, that might be a way, or you know, attaching it to mail messages. That's always been a way that Apple has been able to detect when somebody is trying to email CCM imagery. And as we were saying, like child accounts can't have this turned on. So for the kinds of grooming, enticement, sextortion things that we see where the child victim is part of the conversation, part of the communication, as opposed to CSAM trading among adults where the child victim is not part of that transaction, then that also is a mitigation where this just isn't going to be an option for child accounts. So for the CSAM context in particular, the way that this is designed now, okay, this isn't necessarily going to totally kill law enforcement's uh, abilities. What will happen in the future if they decide to, I, I don't think they're going to turn this on by default for everybody because of the account recovery and usability questions. I just don't know that that is something that, you know, they, that they will want to do. I mean, they already have this for your phone. So they decided to make that choice for your phone where your phone is end-to-end -end encrypted or device storage encrypted by default. Maybe they will make that choice in the future. Maybe they will decide not to. Like I said, because you have account recovery concerns, because the law enforcement concerns are part of, but not the only factor there, because there may be technical concerns about how difficult would it be to support an infrastructure where every single person who has an iCloud account has that ended and encrypted by default. I don't know what a bigger lift that would be technically. But you know, some of the research that I've done, I put out an article earlier this year um, about what I call content oblivious trust and safety techniques for uh, detecting and mitigating various types of abuse, um, where that wasn't necessarily just looking at like just cloud storage providers or even just like ended encrypted messaging providers, but it was looking at like where are the other means of trying to detect different types of abuse and where are the different options available. And my findings there support the conclusion that with the exception of like content scanning uh, for CSAM in particular, for most categories of abuse, there are other interventions uh, for detecting abuse that do not depend upon content analysis where the provider has to have access to the contents of data or files and communications without any user action. Uh, there are other options that may be available. Not all of those may be available to Apple because if you rely upon other things like metadata analysis um, or user reporting, Apple's position may be different from some of the uh, participants in my survey in terms of how much data do they collect on their users and what can they do with that. So I think it remains to be seen as Apple continues to push forward with trying to up the security game for devices, now for cloud, what are they going to do? Right now there is some metadata that is still not end-to-end -end encrypted, even with ADP turned on, is that something that they will be able to leverage? Is that something that they're not touching? I think those are kind of TBD. And I don't know necessarily that even Apple has a plan for exactly what that's going to look like. But I think we can essentially try and cross that bridge when we come to it. So final question, with the understanding that these announcements by Apple just came out last week and that you and other experts are still in the process of studying them, um, and what they mean. If we had someone from Apple on this podcast right now, what would you like to ask them? Are you scanning non-end-to-end encrypted iCloud accounts? And if so, are you using any of that data or those learnings to try and also figure out whether there is abusive material in accounts that are end-to-end -end encrypted? 
We'll have to leave it there for today. Rihanna, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.